So I think it's actually a very exciting time uh, to be part of Structural Heart um, with all of these new things coming out, um, but also an important time for us to really focus on, you know, what are the value, what's the value of these of these new devices that are coming out um, and, and how can we make sure that we provide, you know, not only the optimal clinical care for our patients, but also uh, we, we provide also the optimal value um, for our healthcare system. Welcome to Parallax by Anka Kalra, a podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology and the best from the US Cardiology Review. Published every second Monday, Anka Kalra, MD, interventional cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, speaks with legendary cardiologists, reviews late-breaking trials, and interviews authors of our latest and best US cardiology review articles. We call them hashtag audio articles. Parallax is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. So this podcast is your fix of reliable uptakes on all things cardiology by someone from a non-traditional background who is always looking at the industry from a new angle. Now, here's your host, Anka Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, I have the distinct pleasure and honor of having with me uh, Dr. Barron uh, on the show today. Um, you know, we were just talking off the line. It's it's been a year since we met in person um, at TCT last year, uh, and you know, we sort of briefly uh, talked about her late-breaking clinical trial presentation at TCT last year. And she had two of them. This was one of the two topics that she presented on. And, you know, what, what we were discussing was um, that we can't, we both can't believe that it's actually been a year since, you know, we've been together online talking. Um, so, um, you know, she, uh, you know, just to officially introduce her, Dr. Barron, Suzanne Barron is the director of interventional cardiology research at uh, Leahy Clinic. Um, and that's the Beth Israel Leahy system. Um, so without much further ado, Suzanne, welcome on the show. And uh, thank you so much for making the time. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Tell us a little bit more about, um, you know, how you got to where you are. Um, you know, so training, you know, medical school residency, fellowship, um, and then sort of your, your early career phase and, and, you know, the mentors you encountered. I know this is, the, you, this is like, a, like a long answer, but that, that's okay. it could be a long-winded answer. <laughs> but we just wanted to, to, to get to know more about uh, your career and your journey. Sure. Um, so I'm a, I'm a Northeast girl at heart. I grew up just outside of Boston um, and I went to college at Harvard and then uh, stayed in New England for med school, went to med school at Yale um, and then went back to Mass General to, uh, in Boston to do my, all my training. Um, I knew I wanted to do cardiology pretty early on. I was really just drawn to the physiology, um, you know, behind, you know, cardiovascular disease. Um, however, when I initially started my cardiology fellowship, I said, oh, you know, I'm definitely not going to do interventional cardiology. That seems like a, seems like a tough lifestyle. And it might be fun to, you know, get up in the middle of the night when I'm 30, but it's going to be less fun when I'm 50 and I'm not going to do that. And, uh, I started doing my interventional cardiology rotations and found that I really loved it. Um, I, I thought the types of things that we could treat in the cath lab were neat. I loved the acuity of patient illnesses. And I really loved the teamwork aspect 
um, that really you just see in the cath lab, that there can be so much stuff going on outside that room. But the minute that you're in that room with the patient on the table, it's all about that patient and everybody comes together to really work together and make sure that that patient gets the best care. Um, and I really loved that. Um, I was lucky enough that um, uh, Dr. Igor Palacios, who uh, um, is that way the head of the uh, uh, intervent, uh, the head of the interventional uh, fellowship at that time, um, was super supportive of me. Um, really, really supportive, and, and said, you know, I think you know, even if you, you've got any doubts, don't you should really do this. Um, and he he was just so incredibly supportive, and I, I really. I'm so grateful to him because it really, it made all the difference for, you know, someone like that to take an interest in me and, and be so as supportive as he was. And so I said, all right, I'm, you know, I'm going to do this and did my interventional cardiology fellowship and haven't looked back since. <laughs> um, so I did that at Mass General. And then actually between, um, during my interventional fellowship, um, I really loved it. Um, and I was kind of really fascinated by uh, all of the um, devices that we got to use uh, in the cath lab. You know, this was right around when, you know, tabbers were just getting ready to come out um, onto the field and, you know, you rotobladers and all sorts of cool things. And I really kind of wanted to learn a little bit more about, you know, how do you evaluate these devices? And so uh, the next year, I actually, um, I did two things. I went to um, Harvard School of Public Health and I got my master's um, in clinical epidemiology um, so that I could kind of evaluate devices from that perspective. And then I actually spent um, a year working at the um, FDA uh, in the division, uh, Office of, of Device Evaluation, Division of Cardiac Devices. Um, so I really got a sense of what, you know, the regulatory pathways were for device approval. Um, it was fascinating, really kind of opened up a, a huge, um, a huge kind of what had been a black box to me of how devices were approved and how they were evaluated. And I was really able to get this great perspective on that. Um, I then came back to Mass General, um, did a year of structural uh, interventional fellowship. Um, so TAVRs, MitraClips, PFO, ASD closures, paravalvia leaks, all that good stuff. Uh, again, very lucky to train under uh, two great people, Dr. Palacios and Dr. Ignacio Iglesias, um, who are absolutely fabulous, incredible, incredible mentors. Um, and then actually... Uh, made the large the long turn from uh, being a New England girl my whole life and moved out to Kansas City uh, in Missouri and um, was there for five years at uh, Mid-America Heart Institute, um, which was a, an absolute great experience, just both clinically uh, as well as from a research perspective. Um, I was doing interventional cardiology there as well as structural and um, was really very lucky there as well. They have such a, a great group of interventionalists there with a, a very rich history um, with Jeff Hartzler being, having been there um, with Barry Rutherford uh, was part of the group. Um, and, and now the current folks who are there, folks like uh, Aaron Grantham, um, you know, huge CTO uh, guru, really very, very lucky to work with alongside um, some very talented interventionalists. And then I was uh, able to continue some of my research um, with uh, John Spurtis and Dave Cohen, um, who are both obviously well-known uh, uh, clinical outcomes researchers. And they were really able to mentor me um, into learning how to uh, evaluate quality of life and how to evaluate um, devices from a health economics perspective. Um, and so that was a, you know, a, a, great, a great experience for me out in Kansas City. Um, uh, however, the New England 
New England called to me a little bit. My family is still up here. Um, and uh, so after about five years, uh, I was lucky enough to uh, be able to um, be offered a job at Leahy um, as the director of cardio interventional cardiology research. Um, and so I migrated uh, back to the Northeast uh, last year, actually, um, where I've been um, and doing a lot of the same stuff, actually, uh, doing all my clinical work, my uh, interventional uh, coronary and structural procedures, uh, and then continuing um, research both from a um, health economics perspective, uh, but also um, as far as, you know, helping um, have Leahy become uh, in, in, in participate in um, some of the new trials that are coming out for new devices. So getting to see device, uh, device evaluation from multiple different um, uh, perspectives. Yeah, no, excellent background. Actually, you know, it's, um, so I, I'm, you, so it's, um, I, I shouldn't say it's a um, coincidence, but, you know, I, I've, I've sort of followed your, your career and you and I, I mean, I should say that I share the same interests as you in terms of you know, um, health economics research and outcomes research. I'm, I'm actually, you know, pursuing a, a master's in economics, outcomes and management from the London School of Economics right now. It's, uh, uh, it's an executive program. So uh, I'm, I'm supposed to be in London two weeks um, in June and then two weeks in December uh, for two years in succession. Um, yeah, but, you know, I've sort of always wanted to, to be in this space, uh, you know, just like yourself, but you know, yeah, I didn't have the opportunity to, um, to spend a year, uh, you know, with, with the FDA, uh, you know, did try my hand at Harvard school of public health, but I, I think what precluded me from an, from an admission there was they, they wanted me to, to give the GRE cause I'm, I'm a foreign graduate. Right. I had not, uh, given the, the MCAT. So I, uh, I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to spend time doing high school math. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> Rather, rather look for you know that's when that's when I spoke with Dr. Bhatt, who's who's a, who's been a long time mentor to me at, at the Brigham, and you know he said, yeah, you know I agree with you. You might as well just uh, you know focus on developing your clinical career and and look for programs which can give you this give you a similar skill set without having you to do the, the the GRE, and you know that's where the the LSE program came up. Um, yeah, no, no, thank you. So. Um, uh, but so how do you, how do you, uh, you know, this is something which uh, I, I sort of struggle with, um, uh, or I should say, I, I try, try to hustle as much as I can, but, you know, I, I do uh, kind of, it, it's a struggle, you know, and that is managing time between, you know, clinically being busy in the lab, because, you know, as you know, it's, it's extremely important for an early career person, an early career interventionist, uh, versus spending time doing clinical research, you know, because, you know, for someone like me, me, I'm sure it's, it's the same for you. You get a lot of fulfillment. Uh, you know, I, I do at least get a lot of fulfillment if I'm, uh, you know, cognitively engaged in, in generating science and advancing the science and sort of doing relevant, um, you know, projects, uh, which, uh, you know, then, you know, become, uh, you know, important uh, manuscripts and, and papers, um, that move the field in the right direction. That sort of is, is also very exciting. Uh, and, and then there's family. So how, how do you, how do you dabble and into all of these things and sort of still manage, uh, you know, manage your time? I, you know, I sort of ask that question to, to every, every person I, I look up to and, and, you know, and follow their careers. I wish there were more hours in the week. I bet everyone says the same thing. <laughs> um, I, uh, no, it's, I'm with you. It's busy. I, cause I feel exactly the same way that you do. I think it's really important 
as an early uh, career interventionalist to remain clinically busy um, and to be procedurally, you know, proficient. Um, I really don't ever, you know, want to be the person, you know, that, you know, go, come, goes to the lab, you know, a half a day a week or something like that, you know, because I, I want to feel that I'm proficient and giving, you know, the best procedural care to my patients. And so um, I right now split my time about, you know, 70 to 75% of my time is spent clinical um, and the other 25 to 30% is spent doing research. Um, and most, I would say probably, you know, I'm in the lab two and a half, three days a week, um, you know, doing procedures, whether they're coronaries or structural. Um, and then the rest, like I said, the rest of the time that I'm doing research um, is research. But I think you, you can probably attest to this as well. Uh, to, to do really do clinical research, it isn't just that 20 to 30 percent of time out of a, a 40 hour work week because, you know, we all know we don't really work 40 hour, 40 hour work weeks. So it's, it's a lot of nights. It's a lot of weekends. Um, it, but like you said, I think it, it's very cognitively rewarding um, to kind of have that type of that that type of challenge um, and um, in, in your life um, beyond just um, doing procedures, it's, it's, it's just another way of, of, of kind of challenging yourself. And I, I really do love it. Um, I'm very lucky that I have a very understanding spouse who is incredibly supportive of me. Um, and so he's, he's, he's absolutely fabulous about supporting, you know, when I'm like, oh, I'm staying up late and writing a paper, or, you know what, this weekend, I gotta, I gotta buckle down and, and, uh, and do, and do some analyses and stuff. And, and that certainly is very, very helpful. Um, and I, but I think it comes a lot from the fact that, you know, he sees how much I love it and how much it, how important it is to me and, and how much it really drives me. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, I sort of, um, one of my really good friends who's a, a cardiologist at uh, UT Southwestern, he's incredibly productive. You know, someone who inspires me is, is Ambrish Pandey and he, him and I, him and I chat, you know, every now and then we're, we're, we're both from the same institution in, in, in India, the all India Institute. And, you know, he was my, um, my intern when I was a, a resident, you know, uh, all, how, you know, all these years down the road, we're, we're both in the U S and we're both, uh, you know, involved in academic medicine. And, you know, we, we sort of, um, you know, joke around at times and, you know, call each other weekend warriors, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, we're, we're all, we're all weekend warriors, you know, trying to get uh, stuff done over the weekends. Uh, but you know, but it, I, I agree with you. It's, uh, yep. <laughs> I think, um, you know, what, what, what yep. it keeps at, at least keeps me moving is just the, the, the excitement and, and the passion that, that surrounds, uh, you know, clinical investigation. And, uh, you know, it's something that, uh, I'm, I'm fortunate that I, I possess and I have, uh, cause otherwise, you know, it could, it could get pretty daunting, you know, right. To, to, to get these things done and, and get these, get these things accomplished in a timely Absolutely. fashion. But, you know, I'm just going to dive right into the topic. Um, and thank you for making the contribution to us cardiology review on, uh, you know, your paper. Uh, which is a clinical trial perspective, and that is cost effectiveness of edge-to-edge transcatheter mitral valve repair versus medical therapy in patients with heart failure and secondary mitral regurgitation. Uh, and these are the results from the the COAP trial. Um, so, um, just uh, you know, to start the discussion, uh, you know, give us a bit of a background. You know, why, why do you think this topic is um, of importance? Why do you think why do you think it 
uh, has gained um, you know traction and and attention uh, from all of us. You know, particularly you know secondary micro regurgitation. I, I think the audience would, would benefit from you know your uh, viewpoints on on these questions. Absolutely. Well, I think there's actually a couple of a couple of things to parse out there. I mean, I think in general, when we're talking about um, new uh, new technologies in healthcare, I mean that's that's kind of a lightning rod topic these days because we've got we've we've done so much innovation um, in technology over the last you know twenty some odd years, but all of these things cost money, um, and you know so our our it's 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 our wants our wants are are unlimited of what we can do and how we can treat patients. But the reality is, is our, our resources, our healthcare money and what we can expend is limited. And, and so at a certain point, you have to really make decisions regarding resource allocation. I mean, and a way to do that is to really is to, is to decide what is the value of a new technology um, when you're applying it to a specific disease process. Now, in the case of secondary mitral regurgitation, you know, that's something that really up until the mitra clip, we didn't have great treatments for. Um, you know, certainly there's medical therapy, um, but we know folks weren't doing particularly great with that. And then there's the, uh, the question of surgical repair. Um, and, you know, the studies beyond that haven't, what, whereas for primary mitral regurgitation, we know that surgical repair replacement, you know, certainly does portend good outcomes. But for secondary mitral regurgitation, it really hasn't, um, you know, and it only receives a, a, 2B cl- a class 2B indication in the guidelines. So you really had this area where we didn't have great uh, technology to treat patients. Um, and so there was this, this opening, I think, for the MitraClip to come in. Um, and we saw what it showed. And we saw that in COAPT in particular, um, that outcomes were significantly better when we compared them to medical therapy. Um, the question comes up then again, that's great. What does it cost? What is the value? How do we define that value? What is the value to our patients? What is the value to the healthcare system? And what is the value to our society? Um, and I think in that situation, again, with a new technology to treat a certain um, disease process, those are questions that we really need to ask, especially in this day and age. Uh, excellent. So, you know, just um, to get uh, the audience up to speed on um, the, the details of the COAP trial, would you, would you mind summarizing that for us? You know, what was the question that the COAP trial was trying to address? And, um, you know, maybe uh, just if you could touch upon some of the background medical therapy that patients were on and, uh, you know, then um, with the technology that you described that, you know, is, is important for secondary mitral regurgitation, which, you know, until maybe the COAPT was, was really an orphan disease with, with no um, specific targeted therapies for it uh, and, you know, patients presenting with heart failure. I think if you could touch on both those aspects uh, and, you know, just sort of, sort of parse them out for the listenership, I think that'll be great learning points for us. Absolutely. Um, so the COAP trial uh, randomized just over 600 patients. Um, they were patients who had symptomatic, severe secondary mitral regurgitation, um, and they were randomized to either receive goal-directed medical therapy um, or treatment with MitraClip, which is a percutaneous edge-to-edge uh, MitraClip repair. Um, For patients to be included into the trial, um, they had to remain symptomatic after uh, being on optimized medical therapy. And so that was things that included, you know, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, uh, diuretic therapy, um, and even uh, technology uh, treatments as well, things like CRT um, uh, therapy um, as well. 
And so these were patients that despite us giving them the best of the medical therapy that we could do, and that medical therapy was determined to be the best by a heart failure expert, um, they still remained symptomatic. Um, and so they were then randomized to continue to receive medical therapy um, or to be treated with the microclip. Um, patients were followed for uh, two years was the plan, minimum of one year, but the final endpoint was at two years. And, you know, it was an interesting thing um, that this trial did. They made their primary endpoint uh, repeat heart failure hospitalizations, which is an interesting thing because when you look at this patient population, that, that's something that we're really trying to decrease. Again, from a quality of life standpoint, uh, as well as from a resource allocation standpoint. Um, how can we decrease these folks coming into the hospital with heart failure exacerbations? Um, and so what they found was is that patients uh, who received the MitraClip um, had a substantially lower uh, rate of heart failure hospitalizations in two years when compared with folks who were just being treated with medical therapy. I think the surprising thing and the thing that nobody really expected to find was that they also saw a mortality benefit. Um, Really, the expectation was is that mitroclip would reduce heart failure exacerbations, but wouldn't really change, you know, the overall progression of, of and prognosis of the disease. But they actually saw almost a fifty percent uh, de decrease um, in mortality uh, with treatment from mitroclip when compared to, to goal-directed therapy. And so, in that setting, um, this trial was really considered a a, a, a real success um, and offered now a way to treat patients with this disease process, kind of, as you said, this, this kind of orphan disease process, we now had something to treat them with that we didn't have prior to this. Um, absolutely. So, um, you know, for the audience now, uh, I know, I know you've, you're sort of an, an expert in, in this area with, with cost effectiveness analyses and, you know, something w which is of interest to me in person also, because, you know, healthcare resource allocation and, util and utilization is, is an, is is a personal area of of interest for me as well. Uh, if you want to just explain to the listenership and, and to the audience, uh, you know what sort of goes in to the analytical aspects of cost effectiveness analysis. So you know, for example, if you want to pick up a therapy, you know whether it's device or drug, and you know you sort of decide, okay, I, I'm gonna, I, I really want to see if this is cost effective from a population health perspective or a population health standpoint. What are some of the tools that you would exercise or, you know, you would sort of pull out of your toolbox um, as, a, as an analyst um, for you to be able to answer that question. How are you going to model, uh, you, you know, uh, the analysis for you to be um, able to derive, um, you know, scientifically valid conclusions? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, when we think about cost effectiveness um, analyses, it exactly kind of the name says it all, right? We're, we're, we're basically what we're doing is, is we're trying to balance or, or compare what are the costs of this treatment versus what is the benefit that patients receive. Um, and in most settings, what we're doing is we're not just looking at what is the cost versus the benefit of one treatment. We're looking at what is the cost versus benefit um, between treatments. So in the case of the COAP trial, it is what is the what is the difference in costs between mitroclip therapy and just and goal directed medical therapy versus what are the benefits gained between these with uh, the benefits gained um, difference in benefits gained between these two uh, therapies? So the, the way that we do that, or the way that health economists do that, is is we actually calculate something called an incremental cost effectiveness ratio or an ICER. 
Um, and what an ICER again is, is, is it essentially compares the differences of cost between treatments with the differences in benefits between treatments. So we first need to do that. We need to think about what are the costs of each of these treatments. Um, and it, it includes a lot of things. It includes the cost of the index procedure. So what is the cost of the device, for example? What is the cost of you know, the, the wires and the IV tubing and the sheaths and the surgical equipment that go into to doing a procedure like the microclip? Um, it also has to include things like the overhead cost of the procedure room. So, you know, these, these, these procedures take up an OR or a hybrid cath lab. What, uh, how do we factor in the depreciation of the, of the cost of that room or the personnel who are in that room? Um, then you got to think about what's the cost of the index hospitalization besides the procedure. So do patients end up staying in the hospital for five days? Um, are they in an ICU? Are they requiring other procedures afterwards? For example, you know, we think about TAVR, you know, are they going to need a pacemaker after the procedure or not? And then it's follow-up medical costs as, as well. So those are things like, well, patients get rehospitalized. That costs money. Do patients need to, after they get the procedure done, do they end up going to long-term care facilities or short-term rehabs? Um, and then all of the things that come with just outpatient care, medication costs, emergency room visits, clinics, uh, clinic visits, and then doctor fees as well. Um, so we have to add all of those up, not only over just the duration of, uh, of a trial, perhaps, but we have to think about this from a lifetime perspective as well. Um, and then we have to think about benefits. And, and really one of the things that I think is important when you think about benefits, we can think of it in very kind of black and white terminology of, well, does the person live longer? mortality, longer life. That's absolutely a very, you know, kind of black and white way to, to, to view benefits. But I would say that I don't think it's the only way. And certainly I think we need to, and I think most people would agree with this, that we need to also um, weigh in the fact of quality of life in addition to quantity of life. Um, so most patients would say, and I think actually I think all of us would say, you know, I wouldn't necessarily want to live longer if I'm living in a coma. Um, I want to live longer, but I want it to be a good quality of life if I'm living longer. Um, and, and there have been studies that have actually shown, you know, particularly in elderly patients, that they value quality of life over quantity. So when you're looking at how do you how do you measure the benefits of a procedure or benefits of a new technology, you really want to use a metric that incorporates both quality and quantity of life. And so what that uh, what that's generally comes comes to is called quality adjusted life years. That's been the most common way to uh, combine both quality of life and survival into a single metric. Um, and so basically what we end up doing to get our incremental cost effectiveness ratios, we take the difference in the cost between the treatments, and then we take the difference in what we say the qualities gained or the quality adjusted life years gained between the treatments, and we come up with a number. Um, and so based on that number, we can decide is something good value or not um, from, a, from, a, from, a, from a societal perspective. Well, you know, excellent uh, discussion and, uh, you know, thank you for, uh, you know, really defining uh, those two terms for for us, you know, for the listenership. You know, I think for those um, of us who are, you know, early career or fellows in training or residents, uh, you know, essentially people in their formative years and who want to sort of dabble into cost effectiveness analyses and, and health economics, you know, these are important terms to um to, to know about and you know, conceptually think about and, and sort of be facile with, um, you know, or, or you, even if you don't want to dabble into these, uh, uh, you know, these kinds of analyses, but uh, are sort of examining a paper of this sort 
um, I, I do think having, you know, background knowledge and information on incremental cost effectiveness ratio and quality just as life years, just the way Suzanne explained it, um, you know, are, you know, I think are key concepts for understanding what you're, what you're reading. Um, so, you know, with that background, Suzanne, then wh why don't you go over, uh, the, the results, um, you know, that, that you presented, you know, last year at, at TCT and also, you know, sort of what you've discussed, uh, in this paper here at, in us cardiology review. Sure. Um, so, you know, I think, I certainly think that again, when any new technology comes onto, on, uh, or is going for a new indication or comes onto the market, I think it's really important to think about value and kind of going back to what you just said, actually, you know, about how it's important for, you know, early career folks and anybody who's just reading this type of paper to really understand what an incremental cost effective ratio is. I absolutely agree with you. Um, because at the end of the day, even if you're not going to do health economic research, um, understanding the importance of of these types of um, analyses and value um, certainly help all of us be better stewards of healthcare. Um, not that cost should drive, you know, what we choose to do for our patients, obviously not, but, you know, kind of taking that broader picture um, and letting us really think about how these, how these different new technologies really can fit into um, our toolbox to treat our patients and when's the most appropriate and the best value um, of, of which ones to use. Um, and so that's, I think, kind of why it was important to, to make sure that this was a, a study that was done for the COAPT trial, because um, basically you've got a large population of patients who could be eligible for this procedure. Um, patients, you know, it's, you know we, we see a lot of patients with severe um, secondary uh, mitral regurgitation who remain symptomatic. Um, and we really have to think about if we've got an expensive technology like the MitraClip and a large population of patients who can be treated, you know, we really have to be able to quantify what the value is of this procedure. And so um, this was a formal, you know, so we did is we had a formal uh, health economic analysis that was conducted alongside the COAPT trial um, and embedded with it um, during the, the time of the trial duration. Um, and so we uh, went ahead, we costed uh, all aspects of in-trial costs, including the index um, hospitalization, um, which included the procedure as well as the non-procedural costs. And then we did follow-up costs as well, which again included all rehospitalizations, post-acute care, outpatient visits, uh, medications, things like that over two years. Um, and then we also, you know, looked at the difference in survival at two years, um, as well as the difference in quality of life at two years. And then taking all of that in-trial data, um, we essentially uh, created models uh, to calculate um, uh, over each patient's lifetime uh, what their uh, lifetime costs would be and their lifetime quality adjusted survival was predicted to be. And we were able to, at that point, calculate um, up an ICER. So um, one of the things that we found was is that the follow-up costs over the in-trial period were significantly lower with the MitraClip group. Um, and that makes sense. We know that that was driven, majority that was driven by a decrease in heart failure hospitalizations in particular, which is what the clinical uh, results of the COAP trial showed. Um, that said, there's an upfront cost of the MitraClip, the procedure itself. Um, you know, obviously folks who are being just treated with medical therapy had had no upfront cost. Uh, they just had the same medicines that they had been on before, whereas um, the MitraClip uh, index hospitalization, we estimated it costing just over $48,000. So automatically, you know, you're in, you're in the hole for $48,000. And so because of those kind of higher upfront costs, even though there was a significant decrease in uh, follow-up costs, 
the overall lifetime costs um, for mitral therapy were estimated to be just over $45,000 uh, when compared to medical therapy. But there was the benefit. And as we talked about, there was lower heart failure hospitalizations um, and folks lived longer um, when they were treated with the MitraClip, and their quality of life was better when they were treated with the MitraClip. And so we projected a lifetime increase in quality adjusted life expectancy of, of 0.82 years. So when we, we do the math and we calculate out what the cost versus the benefit ratio is, and we calculate out our incremental cost effectiveness ratio, it, it came to uh, $55,600 per, per quality uh, adjusted life year gained when compared to medical therapy. Now, it's always hard to think or, or know really, you know, is that, is that good value or not? $55,000 is a lot of money. Is, is that something that's considered good value? Um, the AHA and ACC, um, with the help of the World Health Organization, have essentially have, have made benchmarks to what's considered good value. And essentially, it's um, one uh, GDP uh, capita uh, per quality gained is considered to be good value, whereas uh, upper limit of normal would be three um, to be considered poor value. So in the U.S., back in 2011, when they made these guidelines, uh, they, they, uh, the GDP was about $50,000. So what's considered right now is, is that a threshold of $50,000 per quality gained is considered to be of good economic value, whereas a threshold of anything over $150,000 or three times $50,000 would be considered to be poor economic value. So Given an, uh, an incremental cost-effective ratio of the MitraClip at $55,600, we're pretty close to that threshold of, of high economic value in the United States. Um, absolutely. No, that, was a, that was a great discussion and also a great explanation of, of how to interpret these results. You know, so thank you for uh, discussing and bringing up you know, cross-domestic product and you know, how, that, um, how that value plays into uh, you know, the decision-making process um, with regard to whether a particular intervention, you know, in, in this instance, um, a, a device therapy with, uh, with MitraClip, um, you know, is of, um, uh, you know, is of economic value, uh, you know, to the, to the U S healthcare system. Um, so um, have you in, uh, in, in your practice, Suzanne, have you seen an uptick in, in the number of MitraClip uh, cases, um, I mean, you know, at, at Lehi or, you know, you know, where you were before, I, I know you recently transitioned over to Lehi. So, uh, you know, just, uh, um, just, just an observation, you know, I'm, I'm cause you know, I, I think I, I have in, in person, you know, I have seen an uptick in, in the number of, uh, you know, functional mitral regurgitation patients that are now getting this therapy. I just wanted to get a, get a perspective from you. Yep. No, I absolutely agree with you. I've certainly seen an uptick, not only in the referrals, but also in the patients that, you know, that we have been doing. Um, and that certainly has increased since, uh, since the, the uh, results of COAPT came out. Um, it's an interesting thing because I certainly think it's something that we, it, this is, a, I think, a great therapy for the right patient. But I think the key is here is it's got to be the right patient. Because um, right, the elephant in the room or I know has been discussed many times is the MITRA FR trial, um, right, which is the same patient population, well, was designed to be the same patient population, but certainly didn't have the results that COAPT had. You know, again, they compared, same idea, goal-directed medical therapy, um, compared it to uh, MITRA therapy in patients who had secondary, you know, severe symptomatic uh, 
uh, mitral regurgitation, and they didn't find the same benefits um, that were seen in COAPT. There was no mortality benefit seen, and there was no significant change in heart failure hospitalizations. Um, and, you know, when those trials were scrutinized side by side, you know, as it turns out, the patient populations were, were different. Um, even though they on paper appeared to be initially the same, there was some s- substantial differences to them. Um, the patients in mitral FR, uh, it seemed that they had worse uh, LV dysfunction um, and maybe not quite as severe mitral regurgitation as the COAPT patients. Um, and there was also, a, it was noted that patients in the mitral FR trial um, weren't required to be on optimal, maximal doses of guideline-directed medical therapy at the start of the trial. They were able to kind of increase as the trial went on. So there were some significant differences in the patient populations. And I think that's an important thing um, to think about as we, as we see the um, number of, of MitraClip um, procedures going up for patients with secondary MR. It really needs to be in the, in the, in the patients who most closely fit into the COAPT trial because First of all, we want to give benefit to our patients. We want them to feel better. We want to know that we're doing a procedure that's going to benefit them. And we, you know, the MitraFR patients didn't see that same benefit. But again, also from from a healthcare, uh, you know, economic standpoint, you know, there was no formal cost effectiveness analysis that was done of the MitraFR trial. But we, it doesn't matter. We we know what it would we know what it would show. It didn't show that the device was effective. So by definition, the cost effectiveness ratio is not going to be in favor um, in that patient population. So I think given that we are seeing this uptick, I think it becomes even more important both from um, a patient care standpoint as well as from a health system standpoint to really um, make sure that we're good stewards of, uh, of, of our resources and really do apply this technology to those patients who are closest to the co-opt patients and therefore will actually see um, a benefit that's of good value. Absolutely. Now, let me ask you uh, this, Suzanne, because, you know, I know this has come up at least in, in my thought process, um, you know, when I'm taking care of these patients. Uh, and, and I'm sure, um, you know, this is uh, the scenario in in a lot of these centers that are offering structural heart therapies uh, for their patients. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you would work in close concert with your heart failure colleagues because, you know, they see a lot of these patients. Uh, and um, my question to you is, um, at, at what point, um, in the natural evolution of this disease, of this disease process, uh, do you say, okay, we've, we've had enough, we've traveled enough with medical therapy and, you know, we don't see an improvement, you know, either from a symptom, uh, well, I think if it's a symptom driven improvement, it's sort of, you know, easier to catch, but you know, what if the patient is not symptomatic, but you have you know, like maybe neurocard association class two symptoms. I shouldn't say entirely asymptomatic, but what if the patient has neurocard association class two symptoms? You know, EF is about 35%. Now the patient is on an angiotensin eprilysin inhibitor, a beta blocker, a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist. Okay, and also now an SGLT2 inhibitor, which I'm not sure was part of the armamentarium at the time Quap was done because it wasn't standard of care. But say you have the patient on all these therapies and and, and, you know, and, you know, you'd be like, um, you know, the, the patient sort of getting along and going by, yes, there's, there's moderate to severe MR, but at what point in time, I, I don't know if I, if I, I was able to articulate my question well enough for you to understand it as to where I'm coming from, but at what point would you say, okay, you know, I, I, we think it's time to intervene. Let's, let's discuss mitral clip for this patient. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, actually, 
I mean, that's the reality, right? These 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 trials end up being snapshots in time. You you brought up a couple of really good things, right? Some of the, some of the things that we do treat our patients with now weren't really being used that much in the um, uh, weren't really being used in the in, in the co-op trial because they weren't really available at the time. So the SLGPTs, the um, uh, uh, um, uh, Entresto, things like that, um, which certainly you know can affect cost as well as outcomes. Um, and those weren't necessarily being used. So, you know, you automatically when you got a patient who's on those things, you know, do they really fit into co-apt? And, and then you brought up the question of, you know, symptoms, um, you know, well, somebody's got some symptoms, but they're not really that symptomatic. And, you know, how do you start weighing the, the, the cost benefit ratio of going in um, and doing a procedure on a patient that has risk and cost, uh, risk to the patient, cost to the health system? Um, you know, when you're not totally sure exactly what the benefit's going to be, because we know these, you know, this patient didn't necessarily fit into COAPT, but they didn't necessarily fit into MitraFR either. Um, and I really think this is one of the things that um, there's such a benefit of both the heart team um, approach to these types of patients that we're seeing, you know, with all the structural heart patients really that started with TAVR, um, as well as the process of shared decision making, you know, really taking the time. Um, to you know, sit with the patient and really kind of get a sense of what their preferences are, what their values are, you know, how limited are they from their symptoms? How you know, how willing are they to undergo a procedure that carries not a ton of risk, but but some, nothing's risk-free, um, and really just really getting into it with the patient and their family um, about. What what are the benefits that you can you, that you may be able to expect? What can we guarantee? Can we guarantee anything? Um, and and what are the risks that that will come to that? Um, I think certainly from my perspective, you know, one of the things I've learned over over the last several years is, is structural heart has grown. That the importance of patient input um, and frank discussions about what's known and what's not known has become so important. And I think has really served to further the, the doctor-patient relationship for sure. I think there will be indication, you know, I think there will be indication creep. Um, I think that's just a reality with any new technology um, because it's just, you know, as we get something that we can treat people with, we start to say, well, if we can kind of go, well, maybe we treat the person who's got class two symptoms and not class three. Well, what if we treat asymptomatic people? Will they still see that mortality benefit? I mean, that's, you know, that had nothing to do with quality of life. That was, that was frank mortality. Um, and I think it will be interesting to see over time since the indication creep will likely happen, but a randomized control trial looking at those patients might not. It will be interesting to see uh, over time um, how folks, how, how real world data ends up uh, comparing uh, to the COAPT trial data uh, as well as the MITRA FR data. Any, any closing remarks for for this paper and, and for the field of transcatheter mitral valve repair in general from you, Suzanne? Yeah, um, sure. I, you know, I think, like I said, I think the COAP trial was a big win for our patients, um, you know, giving this patient population something uh, to treat them with that we weren't able to offer before. But, you know, we know that MitraClip is, is not the only, uh, it's not the only game in town and that there are many other devices that are under investigation right now. Um, you know, percutaneous mitral valve replacements, there's spacing devices, there's you know, sur- uh, devices that are, are mimicking surgical aneuplasty. So we've got a lot of things coming out, out in the pipeline. Um, and, 
you know, it will be interesting to see how these new devices, not only how do these new devices fare from a clinical standpoint, um, but then what their cost effectiveness will be um, compared to either the MitraClip um, or to uh, surgical uh, mitral valve replacement. So I think it's actually a very exciting time uh, to be part of Structural Heart um, with all of these new things coming out, um, but also an important time for us to really focus on, you know, what are the value, what's the value of these, of these new devices that are coming out um, and, and how can we make sure that we provide, you know, not only the optimal clinical care for our patients, but also uh, we, we provide also the optimal value um, for our healthcare system. Uh, great. So, you know, uh, Suzanne, thanks again. Th- this has been this has been a great conversation. You know, thank you for uh, sharing your journey with us and and also some of the uh, some of the other answers that that you shared. Um, and you know, obviously, uh, thanks for your contribution to U.S. Cardiology Review. No, that was great. I really appreciate uh, you having me on the show. This was this was a lot of fun and really enjoyed speaking with you. Yeah. No. Likewise. Um, thank you. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you soon. Dear cardiologists, we want to make this podcast about you and for you. So please email us your critical thoughts, comments and questions at podcast at radcliffe-group.com and visit uscjournal.com for more information. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram at Radcliffe Cardiology for daily updates. Join thousands of cardiologists and become a Radcliffian by registering to radcliffecardiology.com. You will receive regular newsletters and gain access to hundreds of expert interviews, educational webinars, clinical cases, and peer-reviewed articles from our six medical review journals on general cardiology, interventional cardiology, arrhythmia and electrophysiology, cardiac failure, and vascular and endovascular surgery. Thank you.